Hey everyone, this is James Fitzgerald. Welcome to the Big Dog Podcast. Uh, apparently it's episode 33. I was just looking at the stats that uh, it's been a while. Um, so again, I apologize for that. Uh, but, you know, sometimes just things have to be done. And um, on the priority list, um, this is not uh, number one. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm still not going to look forward to sharing specific information or uh, educating or just uh, commenting on some different things, but to have a constant, regular content and schedule for it um, doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just not realistic. Um, but I do promise that uh, I do still make attempts for it. I have a list on the whiteboard there of things that I want to discuss. Um, it looks like we had uh, looks like we have around a thousand people that listen to it um, and forty one thousand specific plays. Um, I'm just mentioning that too because that's just reality in numbers Um, and it makes me think a lot about um, just education in general and podcasting and information sharing and uh, I recognize that uh, we are in a sea, uh, a massive sea, we're like a one fish in in the sea and um, I recognize the kind of impact that truly does make. Um, so in the end, you have to recognize that if you get a little piece of information that's helpful for you, I'm happy for you. Uh, but in the end, this is mainly just to stretch some ideas and get it out into the fitness multiverse and uh, see what people do with it. <clears throat> the episode today will be uh, about uh, Pavel Satsaline's uh, commentary on Joe Rogan experience. Um, I had a number of people who uh, just asked some specific questions on things that were mentioned in the podcast. And so I thought I'd... Uh, just cover it in a podcast of some uh, differing views and differing opinions and a lot of agreements, really, uh, based upon just the questions that were asked on uh, Joe's podcast um, and uh, give you a little perspective on some things that I've had some time to massage, uh, maybe a little bit more, and, uh, you know, just get people's uh, brains thinking a little bit in terms of context of uh, certain areas. Some of those things will be uh, glycolysis, uh, kettlebell training, um, training design principles, um, and some of the bigger things that are usually on the on the forefront um, of the kind of things that I discuss indirectly. Um, and look to the future for some things that I have on the whiteboard that I want to cover. Um, I do have a podcast coming up, um, which I will cover in more, I guess you would call it more strict detail, or they'll actually have to be a ton of planning beforehand um, uh, because I want to tackle the big area of, well, it's big in my mind, of uh, how you get around the uh, individualization training for teams and team sports um, and strength and conditioning for team sports. Um, we still are under the context due to economic uh, social construct, economic demand, social construct, um, a number of other things. Um, we're, we still are doing, you know, moderate to high and low intense group fitness training for teams, for team sport. And philosophically, I think that's a big problem. So uh, I've spoken to a number of people that um, wanted to either share ideas or at least start the conversation as to how that can be fixed. And so I propose to discuss that next. Um, also on the whiteboard is uh, a number of different areas uh number one 
one, I, I have uh, lots of people that have asked me something interesting. Remember the AMSI episodes? They're still going to be going. So I have a number of questions there that people have asked. Don't hesitate still to ask me that if you're listening in, james at opexfit.com. And clearly put it in the heading if you want me to cover it in a podcast. Just say, could you ask this on a podcast? Or could you you know mention this on a podcast? Because I do have a list of things that I'm going to cover. And then secondly, um, just an area of interest. I'm not sure if people may find that interesting or not, but I'm going to tackle um, each sport or each sport as, as, as in depth that I can and how mixed modal fits with that. I think where mixed modal, um, you know, with the, defi- with the definition of it, um, I'll define mixed modal, um, first of all, because um, the common question is now that we have this new name, really, of CrossFit, uh, for what I'm defining, you know, concurrent method training, really. Um, everyone wants to know how you blend that to help benefit uh, sport and sporting athletes and those with the intention of getting better at the sport. And I just want to clarify a number of things for each sport. So I'm going to start uh, based upon uh, someone mentioning my background in soccer and uh, or call it European football. Um, I want to I want to talk first about uh, mixed modal and its impact on soccer. And secondly, we're going to get into... Uh, um, Ironman or uh, ultra endurance uh, multi sport, and um, and then third American football, um, and then fourth uh, badminton for multiple different reasons, because uh, you can pick a whole bunch of principles from what's inside of that. And I just want to talk each in each period about mixed modal training and how that relates to each of those sports. I think it'll be a good conversation um, for a number of different reasons. Um, so some of the things that were covered on uh, Joe's podcast. Um, for conversation. Um, and the reason why, again, I want to discuss these is I took it from a couple different uh, lights uh, or um, vantage points. Um, I, you know, I said to myself, well, if I was to answer those exact same questions that Joe asked, what would I answer? That's one way I did it. Uh, number two, I wanted to um, clarify off of Pavel's uh, points, meaning that I just wanted to use his points as a as a starting point to maybe investigate further what I would think about those exact same answers that he had. Um, And then third, um, I wanted it to come from a critical thinking point of view um, and to create some context around it. On that third point, um, we have to remember for it's very easy after you're on a, you know, a two hour show uh, for things to be picked apart because you only have 20 seconds to answer a question. And if anyone knows how challenging that is, I do know that. So I wanted to preempt that with on that third point of asking people to be more critical thinkers. Um, it is by no means um, a um, personal uh, viewpoint relative to Pavel's. It has specifically to do with um, just you know concepts of uh, training design. I have utmost respect for um, anyone who pushes uh, the narrative of hard work and great principles, and um, uh, he would be probably uh, one of the highest, you know, <laughs> current members of that uh, unknown membership out there that does that. Um, and so, you know, I, but I think it's worthwhile to provide different points of view on that. And I hope it's not confusing. If it is confusing um, to you, where you as a coach or you as a client may be still questioning what's up, then. Uh, you, you know, you just got to keep trying and keep ans- asking questions. Um, so a couple different points based upon, um, I'll, and I'll move around on these. are just things that I remember because I t- took a couple of notes on it. Um, so our indirect sponsor for today is paper. Um, 
um, because I wouldn't be able to uh, do a whole bunch of things that I do without paper. Um, and I would suggest you start doing that as a practice. Start writing again uh, with a pen and putting stuff on paper. You'll be amazed how creative you can become and um, how really I think you could uh, not fast track uh, your mind and your thought process. You could slow it down a little bit, which I think could be uh, gaining a lot more clarity for people. It's very meditative as well to write. Um, you could, you know, use that piece of paper in the evening time for journaling concept. Um, you could, you know, roll it up and light it on fire to use it for kindling if you want to, you know, get yourself warm during the winter time. There's lots of really positives to paper. So uh, we thank the trees and uh, we thank you, paper. And that's what's sponsoring today. Um, a com comment that was made on uh, some of the uh, um, unknown aspects of why we, they talked about Milo and uh, the calf. And progressive overload. Uh, there, there actually is some, um, you know, observed reasons as to why we don't continually get stronger over time. And the simple answer on that, because the commentary was made in there, we're not really sure why we don't continue to increase. And there was some conversation then around different kinds of methods of cycling, step method, and and different forms of overloads. Um, and we just have to remember the context of where we get our uh, evidence from in regards to improvements in strength. And we seem to always forget. Uh, about the human and the human aspect. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, evolution and natural selection, whether you like it or not, still has a big part to play with how strong we really need to get. So there are specific, you know, limitations that are imposed. Um, and we would have observed ourselves throwing around cars by now if we saw that there was a necessary benefit uh, back in the day when we needed to stop a train, you know, if, if a number of people were like, oh, you just slow the train down a little bit and then you keep practicing it and I'm going to stop the train now over time, we as humans would have saw benefit in that. And therefore, after five or six or seven or lots of generations, we would have recognized how important it would be for us to be super strong in order for us to increase our fitness in the in the highest order version definition of fitness, which would be um, improvement in natural selection, passing on genes that are going to help improve um, the human race uh, or Homo sapiens. <clears throat> and if there's you know some inkling along the way that continually to get stronger is not going to provide that, um, that's the main reason why we don't continue to get stronger over a period of time. There are also other subset reasons. Uh, a lot of those have to do with exactly you know cell growth. Um, and um, neuroendocrine function and uh, the brain's ability to continue to uh, pass that information on over time. Um, and as well, we do have this finite, somewhat finite timeline for being on this planet. And uh, in the material world, um, there is a growing phase, a peaking phase, and then resisting entropy phase. And uh, that's another reason, subset reason, why we don't continue to get stronger is because um, our body is set otherwise we'd be getting stronger at age three to eight and you have to really you know deconstruct your brain and your thoughts in order to understand what i mean by that but um there's reasons why and the main reasons why we can't do that from three to eight or lift a car when we're four um, is that there's overriding processes that want us to get set up to reproduce sexually reproduce um, and to continue to permeate our species and that is the essential reason why, and subset reason, why we don't continue to get strong over time. Um, we have just massive limitations based upon evolution. 
So uh, I wanted to partner that up with also something that was mentioned based upon not being sure why uh, I think the commentary was, we don't know why hypertrophy occurs. And Joe questioned him on that, which is a good question. Um, and uh, I think there has been some really clear evidence as to why uh, we gain hypertrophy or the mechanisms of hypertrophy. Uh, the mechanisms of hypertrophy have been well studied um, over the past 20 25 years or so. Um, it doesn't mean we still have a reason why we get bigger um, because that's secondarily the same reason why we don't get stronger over a lifetime. Um, it actually doesn't help us be uh, more effective humans. Uh, there's no utility on us being these huge gargantuans that uh, actually need to send a lot more blood uh, to the periphery. It makes us very inefficient for sustainability for a lifetime. Um, so that's that's a main reason why we don't. We're not all jacked, but the mechanisms of hypertrophy have been studied quite a bit. And relative to mechanical fatigue, metabolic fatigue, or tension uh, theories, um, I know there's some there's a little bit of weakness in the evidence and the and the and the people that were the students inside of the evidence for it. But you know, uh, I'm not I'm not going to give it I'm not going to give it up to uh, you know uh, downplaying hypertrophy simply because. Um, making the statement that we don't know why it occurs. We, we actually do know why it occurs. Um, so I just wanted to make a point on that. I, th I think we do. I think we do have quite a bit of evidence, actually, that supports the, me the, the, the mechanisms behind hypertrophy. And uh, I would just posit that I think people are sometimes stumped by uh, believing that we don't know what those are um, because not everyone is jacked. But again, based on my first point, um, we do such hard work, and I would agree to Pavel's point that there's this like discrete changes that happen in order to make any changes over time, um, regardless of the strength versus hypertrophy first, et cetera, hypertrophy first before strength, you know, to uh, theorize to, uh, to get bigger over time. Um, th there's a finite time on the planet, <laughs> and uh, it just makes no sense for us to get bigger. I really think it's, it's, um, it's nothing more than that. Um, you know, based upon uh, the, you know, the principles of training. Um, I have to disagree with uh, the commentary. Again, this was a just, it could have been taken out of context, but I just wanted to be clear as to how I thought about that. Um, uh, there was some questioning around uh, reviewing a whole bunch of uh, Russian information on weightlifting um, and scoring. And then the commentary was made uh, based upon users of steroids or users of performance-enhancing drugs. And the commentary was made that uh, the principles are still the same inside the users' programs. Um, and, and the only difference is that they can do more volume. And to this, I would say I completely disagree. Um, to have any inflection um, of what I've seen, uh, directly or indirectly, from the study of uh, exogenous hormone use and its... And its uh, its impact on people's, um, you know, the multifaceted impact that it has on individuals. I would say that if you were to study, um, uh, you know, 100 athletes and they're all users, the principles that you can pull from that program um, is, I would say, very, very slim, very slim principles. Just because um, the intervention could have been varied only in volume and intensity, um, that's, you could basically only pull math from that program. But regards to outcomes or effects or anything that you could use to, uh, to use as a base support to develop any other programming, 
I would highly suggest against. Um, and I probably have to be a lot more clear and open that one up a little bit further. But um, man, the, the improvements that someone gets by exogenous hormone use or any form of exogenous intervention is not only in increasing chance of volume. I mean, you have cognitive changes, you have microbiome changes, you have nervous system changes. Um, and just to name a few, you know, it, that it just, it just, it creates so much chaos inside of trying to extract some principles based upon that. So um, I'm, I'm definitely on the, the side of the fence that says you would not want to use any evidence of users, anything inside of it. Um, the only evidence you may want to do is like, wow, that's a heavy weight, or well, that's kind of cool, or that's cool that they did that, but you can't pull any principles of it to help um, in regards to carryover. Um, I think there was a lot of assumptions made as well in another point on uh, um, barbells versus kettlebells. It wasn't just only that equation, but um, my point on it, you know, just I've been clear, very clear on this before, but um, the kettlebell, in my opinion, is just another load. Now, the way that I say that, of course, it may get the hairs up on a lot of people's necks, but um, it, just because it, it, you know, it may have helped some people doesn't mean it's the savior. We could make the exact same point for pulleys. You, know? um, you just, just, just imagine someone in the 1950s uh, was born, um, and then in 1980, uh, they came out of um, uh, Kazakhstan, Right. And uh, and then someone in Western in the Western world in 1990 discovered this person out of Kazakhstan with pulleys. Um, and they were like, holy shit, their training program with pulleys is like making them strong. And, you know, they're they're really you know, they're pulling over all these positive principles. And it just makes so much sense, you know, and they use gravity and physics and all this science to wrap around it um, and then say it's anti glycolytic and it's going to help you get stronger. And, you know. I think you could see you, this is the way you have to see the 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 uh, promotion of any specific modality as being the best modality because the commentary was made that he believes, which very good reason, that it's the best uh, modality, and I would disagree with that. Um, with the kettlebell, um, meaning that it is a it is a fantastic uh, load. It's a fantastic piece of equipment, but it is just that. It's another load. Um, meaning it's another form of loading. So you could use a rock, you could use a med ball, you could use a dumbbell. I know there's a lot of things you can't do with those last three things that I mentioned, but there are a lot of things you can do with those you can't do with a kettlebell. Just a simple one that, you know, I don't want to take it off into Never Never Land on this, but you can't throw it. Um, and so if you're, if you're not like a medicine ball, you're throwing it over your head, you're letting it go. Um, you're just not going to have a good kettlebell over time if you've got to throw it so many different times. You get my point. So just remember that um, when you're trying to compare the kettlebell to other different resistance, you have to be very broad in your thinking. And this ties over into the argument that uh, Pavel makes on... Um, now, he cleared it up a bit, so I don't want to say that he was hating on machines, but we do have to remember that machines are just another form of loading as well, right? You could, you could uh, say that there's so many benefits and virtue signal kettlebells the whole time and then downplay all those other modalities, I would argue that's much easier to do. Except if you've had uh, a lot of experience, like I have had possibly, and now I'm virtue signaling based upon my experience, but um, if you've had a lot of experience, which I have had in the general fitness population with multiple modalities, meaning that I wasn't 
I wasn't raised in education thinking that one modality is the answer, right? I was raised in education thinking that multiple modalities is the answer. So if you're thinking that that's the answer, to my point, it's the same argument I would have to say that you're going to get a more broad, inclusive version of fitness because of what all those different modalities and loads give people. So if you have a machine, if you have a pulley, if you have a band, if you have a dumbbell, if you have a kettlebell, if you have a barbell, um, if you have a rock, if you have a swinging implement, right? if you have uh, bells, if you have... <clears throat> um, uh, I said bands, if you have your body weight, all of these are different implements to honestly gain resistance or overcome resistance. So the arguments uh, are so easy to pick on any of the implements, right? And this is the traditional ones. Well, barbells, you know, people have jack shoulders. Well, come on. There's, there's a lot of people who use barbells who don't get jack shoulders. Um, and I just think that we don't want to be reductionist in thinking based upon what it's going to do. Now, the, the strength of the other side of the argument, there, I have nothing against the positive recommendations that are made as to why kettlebell would be great. You know, the minimalist aspect, it's one piece of equipment, there's numerous different things you can do with it. I agree with all those, right? I agree with all those. But if you were to say in a real world that people had access to multiple modalities, I think the argument would be for the multiple variations of plane. And this is specifically you know, specifically in generalization, uh, but for lots of people just beginning how to just navigate this fucking thing in, uh, we call the the planet and just get around and uh, do different kinds of resistance, I would hope they participate in a non-specialized modality um, because that's a reflection of what life is like. You're going to get multiple different things along the way and you want to be able to overcome those things. Um, and when it gets into the sport specific thing, um, I would see it's, I would see the kettlebell as being even more limiting, uh, for a lot of things that some sports may have. Um, and inside of some sports, you do need to have some specific kinds of angles of rotation and angles of, uh, flexion extension around the hips and angles of, uh, stuff that you just can't do. You can't do specific kinds of dynamic repetitions around all joints with a kettlebell. You can, when you offer a different modality. Um, like body weight or pulleys or barbells or etc. So there's just remember that you have to put a lot of things into the equation of the modality that you want to choose. And I'd be careful of you know jumping on board of you know where that's going to fit in uh, for training. Uh, there was a commentary made as well, which I really enjoyed uh, hearing a different version of uh, muscle endurance for sport and then muscle endurance for health. Um, and I really wanted to speak about the context of slow training. Um, and again, this is just like the, um, the comment that Pavel made on machines. Um, I do agree that, uh, meaning that uh, he did say that machines can be used in multiple different ways to help people in different areas. I would, I would just say that there's like 25 other examples besides peaking for bodybuilding or for um, just doing it slowly in a rehab process. I think there's lots of reasons, as I just said, for uh, different modalities for loading. It would be the same thing for slow training. So again, we don't want to get reductionist in saying that the slow training, if you're only thinking rehab, if you're only thinking performance paradigm or train slow, be slow paradigm, then I can understand how people get stuck in that mindset. And if you're not selling motor control, if you're not selling um, you know, isometrics and endurance specifically just for the fact of getting better at muscle endurance, then I can see why you're a little bit scary of uh, slow movements. 
also remember it's really it's really hard to to slow down a swing right you can do a deadlift but it's hard to do that there's there is a transition phase between a deadlift and a swing it's almost like the transitional phase between running and or sorry walking and running right there's that middle zone where you have to you have to go through that middle zone in order to get to the dynamics my point being is that um, there's lots of benefits i don't know how to you know actually cover this within a couple of seconds but there's so many benefits to training slow um, that are that have nothing to do with hypertrophy or type 1 type 2 fibers or anything um, if that's not the reason why a lot of people train slow I think one of the biggest areas we forget about why people want to train slow is to gain control of movement and motor control right so you want to train slow a lot of times for new people or for a ton of people just to gain control over a movement it doesn't mean it won't speed up and it doesn't mean that dynamics are bad it just means that there's a big place for motor control and slow activity um, and I could, which we don't, won't go there today, I could argue that slower training for people over a long period of time, um, based upon the kind of contractions they deal with day to day, uh, would be far more beneficial. It's very hard to tell me that 80% of all the billions of people on this planet really have carryover from dynamic contractions to living. Think about that, right? We're not, we're not doing a lot of challenging shit today, and we don't require to do a lot of challenging shit today. So I would say that uh, if anyone, if most, if you just had ironically, you know, not ironically, but you had two studies, right? Thousand people went through a study of general health measures of dynamic training. Thousand people went through a general health measures study of slow training. I think the slow training people will have better resilience long term. I really do. So there's a place to play uh, for the slow training. Um, and I would say that the dynamic work, and I'm only putting it in this reduced effort as well. This is probably unfair, but dynamic effort should only get to a point where you can either make them dynamic make them dynamic for metabolic purposes or you're carrying it over to a sports specific setting otherwise i think it should just lay it to rest in regards to how it carries over in a general population um, and uh, for those who say that just because they are doing dynamic reps um, it's good for health i want you to i want you to think harder on that okay because there's multiple ways of doing non-dynamic uh, head-to-toe patterns that you don't necessarily, that have no carry over to living long. Um, the rest area, I do agree with a number of things that uh, um, resting, and I know this, this makes it very challenging for Pavel to discuss this with Joe um, on you know, rest periods in general, because um, as I'm sure if any listeners are aware, rest periods in itself can be you know, a fucking 90-minute to two-hour conversation, right? And the reason why it's a long conversation and you have to be, I have to be empathetic to the answer around this, um, but again, I just wanted to share my point of view, is that it's largely contextual based upon the person and the dose response and the intention. So rest periods, no matter what we're talking about, um, is based upon the person, their capacity, and a number of different areas. And I think some of the conversation that was based inside there made it seem like, uh, rest periods are only a couple and a few um, that that create either limitations or change up um, specific energy system demands. Uh, and I just think that um, there's just so much to discuss in there that we can't be so reduced on rest periods. Um, again, it has to go back to the person, what they're trying to express, their intention, um, etc. And um, I'll just leave it at that for the rest periods. It just needs a lot more investigation. Um, 
it was interesting that, uh, but still, uh, makes sense. Um, maybe, maybe that's, you know, could be, a, a conversation that I'd like to have, uh, with Joe, um, is a, you know, it's for him to ask me the question, you know, this whole CrossFit thing, you know, what is it? Um, it and, and what do you think about it? Um, I think I would probably be able to offer just a little bit more in-depth conversation. Uh, and I'm not saying that I'm the expert in CrossFit, um, but I think I do have lots to talk about. That is not only, um, you know, bad-mouthing the, uh, the concepts of the value of coaching and uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's, you know, there's lots of things inside of it from my experiences of uh, coaching, fitness, preparation, mixed modal training. Um, that I think probably needs a good explanation. But I'm glad that he asked Pavel that question. Um, and uh, Pavel's uh, answers were admirable and it made a lot of sense. I just wanted to point that out. Uh, meaning that there's lots of positives to, you know, just reducing the conversation of this CrossFit thing. Um, but I do think that there's uh, still a lot to be learned that I could even, you know, have a discussion with, uh, with Joe and Pavel or Joe and any other person that um, looks... It looks inside a CrossFit and sees a bunch of things they think they see, um, but, you know, needs some clarity. And one of those areas um, is still, um, you know, carrying over this um, conversation around, and I just had a point here that I was going to hit based upon that, is uh, progressing um, individuals within CrossFit. Um, whenever you get into the conversations of it, it's like how you should do the dose response of it, it's very... It was is what I chose, right? I chose the base support when I started looking at CrossFit from the outside looking in. I used traditional endurance models, like you heard Pavel talking about, trying to get better at a 400 or 800 meter. Um, I used those traditional models, and I used heart rate as a limiting factor for people's progression in CrossFit. Joe asked the question, "Well, how would you how would you do this thing called CrossFit?" He said, "Well, I was preparing for, preparing for the games. I do this thing differently." I think the biggest issue inside of that commentary is that number one, uh, there's CrossFit for health, and then there's CrossFit sport, and it's not only those two, but you got to clarify what you mean when you say that. Um, and if you said only the CrossFit Games, then you did, you know, Pavel did have a lot of great things to offer on it. But I would say that the base support that people use for the progression um, and the program design um, is admirable, but it's the wrong model. Meaning that, you know, you're using a middle distance uh, endurance model, middle distance cyclical endurance model, and you're making the claims that um, you're going to have these two different areas that you need to improve um, called, I believe, uh, muscle endurance and cardiorespiratory activity. And because uh, then he made mention of the cardiorespiratory system being gained by steady state activity. And then what you, you don't want to gain any cardiorespiratory advantages from doing muscle endurance training. Now, that's what I got from the conversation. Back to my point on the CrossFit thing, when you're going to try to progress people inside of that, I just wanted to say that heart rate uh, makes no sense to be used inside of that progression. And I have lots of reasons for that, but it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and the limitation model um, and the fatigue model is different. If the fatigue model is different inside of said sport and said modalities, right? Because we're trying to get good at a whole bunch of things and make it endurance, you can't use the traditional cyclical endurance model, um, fatigue model, right? You can't use the peripheral model or the central governor model um, alone, you know, you can use those as a base support for principles that dictate fatigue, but um, um, as you can hear in my language, it's complex. So um, I wouldn't say, 
that you should be using in recommendations there, heart rate, to determine what people should do in mixed modal training. I think what you heard in there, though, was um, the mindset that, which was positive, the mindset that I had in 2004 around how do you make an endurance you know, how do you make burpees enduring, right? You heard the commentary on do one, walk around, do another, do it for 40 minutes. I, I really like the thought process that Pavel went through on that. Um, and that's when I first started investigating it. So it's been 15 years and we've really upgraded exactly what that endurance model should look like. But he is giving great basic support. But I'm just saying that when you go a step further, the fatigue model has to be considered because the a rate limiter in terms of making things uh, mixed modal aerobic is not the same kind of uh, model that you use for what makes people tired in a cyclical model or a strength model. And I think that's where uh, we probably have some disagreement um, on that. Uh, but I'm glad that the you know that he wanted to have a discussion on it, and I'm glad that um, he brought up some of the points of thinking about. It got a little loose, and you can see in his prescription of you know saying well you know don't do don't do dynamic work but do 80 to 90% heart rate with dynamic work which is what i got from it whether i'm right or wrong you know in what i perceived i heard that's what i heard it kind it's like you're you're saying the same thing but you're expecting you're saying two different things but you're expecting the same results and i'm just saying that uh there are progressive models in place we've investigated this over a long period of time um, and people have to move, you know, um, a different way in a different manner. They have to progress differently. And remember, the ultimate goal of the CrossFit Games, which we're using as a beacon, if you want to get good at that, is complex. It's not just one event, or it's not just it's not just you know doing it good for 20 minutes. You have to do good for 20 minutes, you know, three times a day for three days. And you also have to make all of those dynamic reps aerobic. And that does need and require a huge base support. Um, and I just think it's, uh, it's admirable that he wanted to tackle some of those things. Um, and ironically, he probably could be a little bit more strongly opposed to some of those prescriptions. Um, but uh, it was admirable in his uh, conversation on uh, you know, his thoughts relative to the community aspect and getting people moving and et cetera. But again, um, it's important, I believe, to criticize bad ideas in prescription and uh, ensure that it makes people more critical thinkers as to what they should be doing inside of that program. One thing that I just, I just thought about there that I also heard that I wanted to hit on um, is commentary that was made on um, um, the same uh, principles and parallels. And I heard this, I was driving into work and I heard that and I actually had to pause the podcast because um, he made some points of recognizing, which we do know about glycolysis and glycolytic training and the benefits around that um, and the non-benefits around it. I'm going to get to that. But, you know, he, he did say later in the podcast that, uh, it, you know, you gotta, you got to quickly hit the glycolytic piece and then you'll get some meditations and you quickly can lose it. I really agree upon that. But early in the podcast, he made, um, you know, some commentary on the adaptations of strength over a long period of time. Um, and I think what I heard from the language was possibly incorrect, or maybe it was taken out of context. So again, I apologize for that. But I think the commentary was made that once those adaptations are made, they're hard to lose, just like the aerobic system. Um, and that is incorrect. And the way that we know that is that you could, you could do you know, lots of strength training 
and in the context of where they were discussing it, meaning, because I think this, this came off of making commentary of my belief too, that when you're, when you're an advanced train, trainee and which has, you know, been observed for a long period of time, you know, people who are more intelligent in training only go to the hole a couple of times a year really hard. Um, and so they do adaptive training and they, but they, but the thing is, is that they, they're still training the whole time. And I think where it got lost in conversation was that, uh, what I heard is that you can remove aerobic training or any kind of resistance training for a long period of time. And because you've done a whole lot of it, you'll be able to maintain it. And this is incorrect. So at the cell level, because cardiorespiratory advantages and mitochondrial changes are really a skill, um, you still have to remember that the CPATP system has to be activated consistently in order to be maintained as a characteristic. So as an example, being very reductionist, just to open your brain on the, on the concept of it, um, once you train aerobic training, let's say, and you, you develop all the big, you know, larger characteristics of it, you actually can remove the exact style of aerobic training that you were doing for an extended period of time and still come back and remain almost as high as where you left off if your base support was big. But you can't do the same with strength. So you take a long time off of strength. Sure, you know, you're not going to come back and be an asshole and try to lift. But in this context, the way I'm assessing it, you, can't, you won't even get nowhere near your height of aerobic capabilities, um, even without training it specifically, um, that you would, would inside of just strength paradigm. So just as an example, if you want to try that, I don't suggest people do it, but if you want to try it, just take eight weeks off strength training and see how much you maintain. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, do bodybuilding posing or, you know, Valsalva maneuver 12 times a day, you know, or just do body weight training in between. No, that would make the model and the discussion of this incorrect. My point just being is that those are two different, uh, adaptations and maladapt maladaptive models and maintenance models, uh, meaning aerobic versus strength. Um, and again, it's a, it's, it's a reduced conversation only for my just picking on that point and, you know, uh, just thinking a little harder around it and then seeing that it just doesn't make sense. So um, I just wanted to clarify, and if that needs some clarification, maybe I do need to do a little bit more research on, you know, what that context was, and maybe I heard it differently, but I just wanted to make it clear that I don't want people thinking that because they exercise with a barbell for 16, 17 years, they can all of a sudden, you know, just take six months off, and they think they're going to maintain their strength. They're not. They will lose some serious advantages of the CPATP system because of how it works, and it works differently than cardiorespiratory um, characteristics that are improved upon. Um, uh, the, the kettlebell, um, and he made some commentary on, this is kind of an agreement area. He made some, um, a kettlebell, how the kettlebell certainly helps some people. So, so I think they made mention, they had some great stories there of like, what the heck, we don't know what the heck is going on, why the kettlebell training helped these individuals. Um, but then he did make mention, I'm just repeating them for why it possibly, I, I do have some ideas as to why people just do some specific kinds of kettlebell training and then all of a sudden they become a better runner or they do better at powerlifting. Um, this doesn't mean they're stopping running altogether. That's never the case or just stopping powerlifting. But it's important to remember that there's lots of things that come from 
in placing in a new modality. And we just want to be clear, back to my previous point on variation, unless there's an exact style program in which people only did pulleys or only did band work or only did yoga or only did gymnastics and they compared it, we can't say that the kettlebell was the savior. We can only say that it was what happened because of the transition into the kettlebell training that resulted in the systemic improvement for the athlete overall. So some of the things that can benefit you moving into kettlebell training only and then seeing your performance improve, um, you probably decrease specificity, which is a very positive uh, thing for a lot of people. They sometimes become way too specific and so they can just overrun themselves or get into a pattern that's repeated way too often and that becomes efficient in patterning but their brain doesn't have any excitation. Um, to the second point, which is why the kettlebell training may be very beneficial and why people get these unknown improvements in results or performance when they go directly only to kettlebell training, um, is that it increases novelty. And an increase in novelty of movement, which I've said for a long period of time, which is why I like the concept of constant variance, is that the concept of constant variance for the right person results in an improvement in motor control. In this regards, I think it's an improvement in novelty uh, of, it's, a, it's a novel exercise for the person, therefore it just opens up this buffer zone for them to express themselves possibly better within their sport. Um, I think by doing the kettlebell based upon actual his argument for kettlebell training based upon CNS loading relative to barbell training, I think you're going to decrease CNS demand when you do kettlebell training. And I think that's very positive, right? So you're not doing uh, jump squats, you're not doing dynamic stuff around the ankle and knee, you're not doing um, you know, 7,000 burpees in a session. So my point, not that the, not, not that the marathoner or the powerlifter was doing that, but I'm just saying that you're, you're probably decreasing overall CNS demand if you go into that. Um, I think that even the two examples he'd use, the powerlifter and the runner, um, I think if you went to uh, swings, just using the movement itself, if you went to the swings, um, you're mimicking the extension of the hips at a multiple different you know, range of motion and speed and, uh, and rate. And I think that's highly important for both of those sports, the postural endurance for the running and also basically just decreasing CNS load of the heavy bending for the powerlifter. So I think there's a lot of benefits of doing that. Um, and then I think there's also something that probably needs to be looked at a little bit more biomechanically that unless the load is super high, there is very low eccentric demand at the hinge. I'm going to do a little bit more research in the new year on this by setting up the moxie on both legs in the uh, upper quadrant of the, of the posterior leg um, and go through different loading parameters to see what happens uh, with that with the swing because I think in the swing because we have this option to change knee flexion and the angle of knee flexion um, I think you have a very low, a truly what looks like eccentric uh, work is actually a low eccentric demand of the hinging. Um, and so I think that's, that's a possible reason why I would, I would stay there as to why um, it could have been beneficial for those people. Um, the lactic acid point, I think we probably do have to have a separate conversation because I remember seeing uh, a, lots of commentary on anti-glycolytic training and uh, myself and Mark, uh, Mark Rifkind, Rifkind, I apologize, Mark, uh, if I've said your name incorrectly, but offline we had some conversation around some articles that he shared about anticholinic training and that concept of it. Um, and I do have lots of concepts as well to share on my ideas around the the models of what's truly called, um, you know, let's call glycolytic training, um, and some of its benefits and also some of its downsides. So I'm basically repeating what they had said, but I think where I draw the line in disagreement is that 
you can get to superior levels of capacity inside of CrossFit by doing this anti-glycolytic training. Um, and I really disagree with that, that commentary um, or increasing capacity unto itself alone without doing some glycolytic training. Um, and so if you were to compare two different groups, I really do think if the, if the training was done effectively based upon the context of what we're considering true capacity, I would show you that you do need to have glycolytic training at the right amount of time uh, to improve that capacity. Um, this doesn't disregard the benefits of anti-glycolytic training, but I'm just saying that there's a time and a place for it. Ironically, Pavel talked about it of, you know, developing this, you know, going hard, Metcons, wads, two weeks prior to a competition. Um, I would just say that that is good principle, but it's very reductionist thinking in terms of like what actually has to take place for the competition. Um, the competition needs to be drawn out more in conversation because competitions today are uh, seven events over a weekend, and it's not just one time for an eight-minute set. And so there's multiple reasons why you actually uh, need to know the right kind and amount of dosing. It's not just a, um, it's not just a templated two weeks out, uh, et cetera, which I'm sure he wasn't mentioning it based upon that. It was based upon the question and what he meant for that. But I think it's just important to reflect that um, there is some um, you know, positive benefits of glycolytic training at the right timing for performance methods. Um, I think that it probably needs to, and this is probably, this is outside of this conversation uh, specifically for Pavel's commentary, but I, th I do think people uh, forgot that there was a lot of um, investigation done by a very few amount of people. Uh, I was one of those few people from 2004 till today um, of mixed modal training that people still uh, use, uh, like I said preliminarily, uh, they, they use um, the incorrect model and the incorrect line of thinking um, in terms of the downsides and the benefits of glycolytic training um, in mixed model um, because they, as I said, they haven't you know, thought about um, the, the time it takes to go through all of it to see its lack of benefits or its true benefits in capacity and performance. Um, and I think the same thing is here is that there's really, I would just like to say there's a, you know, to finish off this point, to say that I'm in total agreement with the concept of lactate training being at the right time. I'm just saying that I think most people, including Pavel, could really broaden the scope of the actual practice of glycolytic training and how to do it either appropriately for performance um, and I think that would upgrade the anti-glycolytic training because they would know um, and anyone would know then what is really good and what is horribly, you know, awful. <laughs> and the reason why I think it's important to think about it that way is that it'll open up more broader existence of uh, better prescriptions. And so my point, although it may sound crazy um, or it may sound like I'm all over the place on that, is that because we had spent, you know, probably 15 years now looking at the prescriptions of mixed modal training there's let me just say that there's multiple different versions of uh, lactate training and it's not only mechanical or metabolic um, in the metabolic sense I can understand the hate on glycolytic training but we do have to remember that people can people can achieve uh, a glycolytic response truly only through mechanical and very low metabolic fatigue meaning low ventilation and low thermoregulation as we have measured 
Um, and this can be done through uh, traditional bodybuilding protocols. And I just wanted to make that point to make it clear that whenever you just say glycolytic training, it gets kind of confusing because we know inside of the kettlebell prescription there's dynamic activities. And if you do dynamic repetitions that increase thermoregulation and increase ventilation and those dynamic reps are high, then yes, that can create a glycolytic environment that has really poor effects on proprioception, um, downregulation of immune system function, decreased you know, um, ability for the cortisol to, to go back to rest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, it just gets exhaustive in terms of its, its downsides, I agree. But on the other side of it, it's a thorny thing that you have to do it effectively in order to make people improve performance. So I just wanted to make, make note of that, that it, you, know, you have to really dig in on the person's the prescriptions on what, it, what they call glycolytic training first if they're going to do if they're going to say that you you should do anti-glycolytic training that's my point um, and i don't think uh, pavel does a good job of explaining what is truly glycolytic training in order to understand what is anti-glycolytic training that's my point um, it still doesn't mean that all this all his prescriptions or all his recommendations are not going to make people very fucking healthy and strong as fuck i'm just saying that a picking a point on the glycolytic aspect needs i think a little bit more massaging so maybe maybe uh uh, we can all get together on that one and kind of hash it out to see we're all still saying the same thing, but it'll upgrade all of our prescriptions on what we mean. But just from what I took from that, just recognize that you know bodybuilders and people every day can get to high amounts, as I've measured, um, of millimoles of lactate in their actual resistance training that, that has lots of benefits for individuals, lots of benefits. And so when he made mention of the shitty side of lactate training, like... Um, ammonia and spitting off and um, there was a number of other things that he mentioned I apologize I can't remember but a number of other things that he mentioned that were really shitty of having lactate in your system um, that and like making well he did make the comment it will make you sore it doesn't make you sore alone and I should say that, that needs to be opened up quite a lot um, and because there is some benefits of actually that soreness from a number of different reasons sorry I got off track but um, you should not be seeing lactate as a, as a problem. Lactate is a problem when it's done in a metabolic environment with dynamic contractions um, and a long recovery period um, with high ventilation and a high thermoregulation. Um, so I, I made that lengthy, but because it's complex. So if you don't get into really high ventilation, really high thermoregulation, and they're not dynamic reps, Getting into a lactate area is actually very beneficial for promotion of growth hormone, uh, for immune system function, and for a lot of other benefits. So it's the right dose at the right time and the right kind of glycolytic training that's important. And so I hope I made sense on that commentary for it. And uh, I can only I'm only just summarizing based upon you know what I heard there. Um, and and you know last couple of things I I completely agree on the same point of things. I was really uh, happy to. To hear, of course, I'm an older guy too, um, or I just would assume he's older than me. Maybe, possibly. I apologize, Pavel, if you're not, but um, I'm 46, so I do really think that his commentary wasn't taken out of context, but people could be a little tougher today. Um, I think we could look at strength as being a great base support for a lot of things. I agree with that. I agree with the concepts of taking care of all the recovery um, aspects after you work on basics and after you work on the shitty things that's providing maladaptive scenarios for you. I really agree with that. I agree on the return to injury concepts. 
Um, even though it's not his nor my level of expertise, I think we have lots to offer and concepts around that. Um, that is very important. So based upon what he said, you know, maybe you should uh, listen to that. I do agree based upon the principles and a reduced idea, like I said, around the CrossFit preparation. Um, and I would say that I would upgrade his concept on mitochondria being the only thing at play for the health span idea. But I do agree with reverse engineering uh, what people need to do in order to live long and prosper. I think uh, looking at it from a health span specific idea and area should be the beacon that we should use not that the fact that multiple species have looked at mitochondria being the central aspect of what's creating living long and prospering because there's a number of ways to hack that um, that looks like our mitochondria is being beneficial and there's a shit ton of people uh, on the interwebs today thinking that uh, all those aforementioned things are going to do that um, and it's just simply not true. So, but I do agree with the fact that looking at, you know, what the fuck do you want to do when you're 95 and then reverse engineering that back is probably what should dictate what we should be doing. Um, and lastly, I could not agree more based upon the concepts of strength. He just calls it different names, but, you know, for most people, to live long and prosper, you need to do some consistent forms of resistance and you need to do consistent forms of easy aerobic activity. Um, and that should give you the base support to be able to do a whole ton of shit. You may not be able to chase down and kill zombies. We can leave that to the specialists. But um, I think that kind of style of training is, gonna, is offering a tremendous amount of benefit, along with agreement on his uh, concepts of minimalist or minimalist style training and uh, all the benefits that it provides for people who uh, want that deep practice, like he says, the, 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 the number one positive around minimalist training is not the minimalist volume. It's that it weeds out the people that don't want to be patient. I love that comment um, because uh, it speaks so true around that deep practice that's required of uh, improving physical conditioning and what it's going to lead to for a health span. Um, and then I found it, uh, uh, but he at least took his sight on it, but I just don't want to disregard the fact of... Uh, the positive benefits of short-chain fatty acids from uh, fibers that we get from vegetables. So <laughs> without a disdain for vegetables, um, there is some reasons why we do want to have it. And he said it's probably due to hermesis or fighting off some of the minor toxins that are inside of it. Eh, I'm not sure on that one, but you know we can all agree to disagree on different points of view. Um, you can try to go without uh, fiber for you know years and years. Um, I'd highly suggest against that. Um, and I'd highly suggest uh, thinking about behaviors of eating vegetables simply because they're slight toxins and we're just going to get stronger because we ingest them sometimes. The same argument could be made for um, different forms of uh, uh, saturated fats that are found in the, the red meat and the non-chicken that someone could be having. So um, let's not forget that there are some very positives, not antioxidants, it's the micronutrient level, I think, um, as well as the broad array of things that fill in all the gaps of all our cells that make our, our cells function more appropriately. And, of course, the fiber content, which has a massive effect on microbiome, on the short-chain fatty acids, on rebuilding our entire, entire uh, intestinal tract, um, and a host of other things. Um, so I uh, just wanted to end on that point. Um, I think it was a also in, in regards to... Uh, people's questions. I appreciate those, you know, reaching out right away and saying, "Hey, you know, he made this comment today," and uh, I think it's it's important to continue to have uh, conversation 
and points of view that are shared on those different concepts. Um, and in regards to um, the the exact setup, we still have to remember that it's almost like a, you know, it's like a bunch of 30, 60 second bits because the question has to be answered in a very short period of time. So I'm always, you know, empathetic to that kind of concept and idea. And I haven't been in that format before with Joe. I have been in that format with presentations. I do it all the time. So I do understand the limits of that. But um, I do think it'll help refine all of our messages towards what is right and also some critical thinking around uh, the best lane to take. Um, so if you, anyone has any feedback on that specifically, you can email me, james at opexfit.com, or also uh, just post about it and uh, um, share it on Instagram, um, share it uh, on Twitter. Um, we could get some conversation going maybe on uh, um, having having some more conversation in terms of correct program design and uh, dose response and modalities and training programs um, and mixed modal training in general. So I look forward to that. Okay, everyone, uh, take care and uh, we'll chat with you soon um, about some of those things I talked about in the future podcast for mixed modal versus a sport and ask me something interesting episode and then some uh, uh, the group training for team sports that I want to take care of. All right.